0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, My name's Ian Lewins, a consultant paediatrician uh, based in Derby and I'm very pleased to be joined today again um, by um, Dr. Tom Waterfield who's a paediatrician based in Belfast. Good morning Tom, how are you? Good morning, Um, good thanks Ian. Excellent. Um, And we're discussing a paper that you co-wrote with Dr. Alexander Tracy, uh, which was published in the Archives, Disease in Childhood Education and Practice, um, on how to use clinical signs in meningitis. Now, I know, sort of speaking to you before, you have got a particular interest in meningococcal disease. Um, How did this paper come about? Why was it something that you were interested in writing?
1: Um, So for... For me, one of my other roles is um, is I edit the section on interpretations for archives. Um, And we do a lot of work on uh, tests, how to interpret clinical tests, um, but not very much on actually how to interpret signs. So I can't take all the credit for that, but there's certainly something that myself, um, Ian, and uh, some of the other guys at Archives have been keen to look at how we actually use clinical signs. And the signs of meningism... um, particularly seem to lend themselves to, to this kind of work so you have a, a group of children where you have a pre-test probability or a, you know a concern you have a, a set of uh, signs that you elicit in a set way and then you, you can essentially try and work out what you know the post-test probability is to a certain extent so um I think it, it fits obviously with my interest and then with, with my previous work around meningococcal and then just that kind of interest in in what what does this sign actually mean for the patient in front of me how can i use this as a kind of puzzle piece with all the other puzzle pieces to try and you know put something together
0: okay so to take it really sort of back to basics um for 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 sort of people listening what what do we mean by the differences between meningitis and meningism so uh, it's a really
1: good point so meningitis is a essentially a a disease that's characterized by inflammation of the menin- of the meninges, if you like. So the meningitis itself can be bacterial, uh, viral, uh, fungal, um, or even aseptic. So the actual cause itself of the meningitis can vary. Meningism is actually the clinical kind of features, if you like, and the signs that suggest that the meninges have been irritated. Uh, and, and some of the symptoms of that are things like headache, photophobia, neck stiffness, as people know about. Uh, and then some of the other signs which we'll probably talk about later on, like nuclear rigidity, Koenig's sign, um, and Brzezinski's. So essentially meningisms are the clinical features that you're finding, whereas meningitis is the kind of disease process that you're looking for.
0: Yeah. So I guess my sort of very short reading of this paper is in a child referred how useful are the clinical signs that we've all been taught and learnt at medical school and then subsequently slightly forgotten at predicting whether this child does or doesn't have meningitis
1: yeah I, I, although i what i would say with it is um because i've read it a few times since we do another podcast as well is um it's like anything with these severe infections it's it's kind of putting a puzzle together so um no one kind of sign or feature on its own, present or missing, will, will ever really give you a definite answer. You, you'll know that in your clinical practice. You'll see children who are slightly tachycardic, but everything else is normal. And actually, you can't put it together. And you watch them, and you wait, and you wait. And actually, it was just you know, an odd puzzle piece that didn't fit. And the rest of the picture was quite reassuring. It can be the same with these. So you can have signs of meningism that aren't there, and the child can still be quite sick um, the, the child could also um, maybe come in with a headache or some photophobia or even a bit of a sore neck um, but actually it doesn't fit with the rest of their illness and, and they don't have meningitis so um, we'll go through the signs and their, their value but we're looking at them in isolation and I think it's always a point of saying well how does this fit with the rest of the assessment of the child.
0: Um, so you mentioned those uh, three clinical signs that we were talking about so there's the neck stiffness. Koenig's sign and Brzezinski's sign. So for people who are not quite familiar with this, what 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 are they? Talk us through those.
1: Okay, so thanks Ian So um I think we chatted uh kind of before we started the podcast, just saying that actually some of these signs, I I if I did a straw poll and asked everyone to kind of write down or or describe what they think they are, we would probably get a bit of variation between individuals, which um we'll come back to that came out in some of the papers we looked at. So Essentially, neck stiffness is, is that you're finding evidence of nu- core rigidity, and you're trying to passively flex the neck, um, and to see if you can feel a palpable resistance. This is really difficult in young children um, because with, you would need an element of distraction to be able to do this. So, um, it's quite hard to try and passively flex the neck and distract a child. So, there's always going to be a bit of expertise involved in even in something that sounds as simple as that. Um, in terms of Koenig, so there's some great pictures actually of me with my son um, Oh right yeah so, so he, he he loves the fact that he's in a published paper he thinks he's a bit of a celebrity <laughs> now so that's my son in those pictures um but essentially so for kernigs you lay them supine uh, you flex their hips to 90 degrees and the test is positive if they get pain when you passively uh, extend um at the knee so uh, whereas Brzezinski's sign you again you position them supine and you passively flex the neck the test is positive if they're If doing that causes a kind of reflex, um, flexion of the the hip and the knee. So um, they're probably what people have been doing. I'm sure there's lots of people going around moving legs and moving heads. I I think it's really, it's good to know exactly how this should be done to remind ourselves, but also it's good to make sure that we're actually looking for it, you know, in everyone that comes in that's unwell or has signs of infection um, because it can be so difficult to, to identify those early cases,
0: Yes, ab- absolutely. And uh, as you say, it'd be interesting if you uh, went to an emergency department and said to everybody, show me Koenigs and Brzezinski's and, and see how everybody did it probably differently or slightly scratched their heads and went, oh, I, I wiggle the leg a bit, It's something like that.
1: Yeah, it's, it caused me a bit of nerves just to actually, it's something you do all the time, but once you're going to commit it to paper or talk on a podcast, you you feel about like this pressure to, to get it exact, exactly right. So uh, it is. there are pictures in there. It, it isn't a tricky thing to do. It's probably something we, we could do more frequently. All I would say is it's like a lot of these signs, you know, the abdominal exam is a great one. We're very good at distraction to to, to get the true the, the, a true sense of what's going on and I think with neck stiffness um you know Koenig's Brzezinski the distraction is a big part of it as well
0: yeah absolutely um and I think as you, as we sort of spoke briefly beforehand I think a lot of us do something similar but, but not formally a Koenig's we, we get some to move around the neck and you go okay you've clearly got not got neck stiffness but I've not necessarily done a formal Koenig's or Brzezinski's test
1: no and that's fit so it was part of the the uh, paper and Alex did a lot of this work which is really neat uh, essentially looking at the different papers that we could find that look specifically at these signs so unlike other you know things like biomarkers where we do kind of good accuracy studies it's actually quite hard to find studies where we say you know how do these signs predict but there, there are some out there um, and a bit like you are saying, one of the biggest problems was that actually um there's probably quite a lot of variation between um clinicians and how they're performing tests i mean there's also then um the, the just where I'm on that the papers themselves there was a lot of variation between sites quite small numbers of patients um and not all of them had kind of confirmed microbiology uh, often it was done um as quite a pragmatic type study so you know we look at the children that had these signs done and try and work out whether or not they had meningitis from the reference standards available so um but is the table's in there and it's quite neat I, i think it's it's quite good how he's put that together with all the different um kind of predictive values relative risks um that relating to each of the different
0: clinical signs yeah. So was this? So did, did Alex go off and do kind of a literature review? Yeah. So we worked to do a literature tests.
1: review, and then we looked at it. It wasn't possible to do any kind of uh, meta-analysis with it because um, of the way the data came. So we just literally presented it. So rather than you having to do kind of a literature search and get a feel for what's out there, we've just we've just kind of presented that. So we haven't done you know any pulled results because we can't with the way the data is but we can show you what each of the different table papers are put together and then give you some sort of range for them if that makes sense so that's what we've been able to do so uh, unsurprisingly if you if you come in uh, unwell and you don't have signs of meningism it it drops your risk Um, and it probably about roughly kind of halves it or so Um, whereas if you come in and you have signs you know that we discussed so nuclear rigidity Koenigs, Brzezinski's, it does increase your risk and that can be you know, it's quite a big range but but picking the kind of middle value in and around five five times your risk so so there is a kind of big a big difference between being you know having no
0: signs at all and having one of the signs yeah and uh, in the paper itself it really lays it out very nicely i think to sort of say okay here's scenario one I've got a febrile child over the age of one, and and we'll come back to why that's important. Um, Can the absence of clinical signs of meningism rule out meningitis? Um, And what sort of findings did you you guys come across?
1: So I I always enjoy this. So one of the things I really... We're uh, getting more and more interested in is is risk and and what risk means. To different people how we perceive risk, kind of how we manage it. So, you can I I don't think you can ever within reason rule out or something. So to say we are this this there is never going to be a child that'll have this condition if this this if the this these criteria are met. So. You know, even with the research we've done, you'll have children that appear well with essentially normal biomarkers or near normal who will, who will have severe infection. Um, so in terms of the first one, you know, can you rule it out? So to, you have to do a little bit of digging. So you need to know your pre-test probability. So what's your risk in the room you know, before you start? So given the audience you've got falls between probably uh, pediatricians, emergency pediatricians, emergency doctors, and probably primary care, the paper that I always kind of go back to and it's the paper we used in here is another paper from archives which is the verbical paper i've probably pronounced the author wrong but it's a it's a really neat study that uh, looks at point of care um crp for triage now i'm not so interested in the point of care crp although that's interesting i'm more interested i'm most interested in their population so they've got kids you know over five thousand kids coming in with essentially just undifferentiated illness so it's in a population that have a kind of similar vaccination status, rates of serious infection to what we have in the UK. Um, and so they only had, I think, 17 cases uh, of meningitis. Most of those were viral. So your kind of pre test probability before you come in um, is actually you know, pretty low, in and around 0.3%. And I think all this is in the paper. So you come in with a very low uh, pre test probability. Um now, as we said uh, if if you've got other features if a child is is desperately unwell or it, there's lots of features suggest this child's very sick that that test probably that pre-test probably is gonna change. but if you just take undifferentiated illness walking through the door with no signs of meningism, you're looking in an around one in a thousand risk, perhaps even yeah. lower so You've got your because of the the way that the, that alters your post test probability. So in terms of answering your question about rule rule out, um, if you're happy with kind of you know one in a thousand less than one in a thousand, you um, uh, you you'll probably can rule it out if that makes sense. But yeah. if you're someone who says, well actually, I'll never accept any any risk of, of, at all of anything, then then no, you can't rule anything out.
0: And I think that's that's a really interesting point actually and, and something that I, I, I'm also becoming increasingly interested in and speaking to my medical students. Um, you know, the, the children don't come in with a clear label and it is about managing risk and all the sort of tests and investigations we do are trying to, to sort of give you an idea of risk and, and equally when they go, well, why are you doing this and somebody's doing something slightly different and it it is about you know your acceptance of risk what do what do you accept as an acceptable risk
1: yeah and then the other part that we never ask the the parents so that's the other group i would love to work with you know find out actually um you know what would be acceptable but balancing that with the intervention and also the likely outcome so yeah, you know, for something like this is a really good kind of acid test for that. So you've got something that's potentially life changing, especially if it's bacterial meningitis. But you've also got um, pretty unpleasant invasive procedures to diagnose it. So, especially in older children where you need sedation, you're know, talking about a lumbar puncture. Not you know, not pleasant. I'd be I'd really, I'd be fascinating to find out where that where that kind of risk benefit, you know, harm benefit kind of levels sat with parents but yeah it's probably something for the future hopefully
0: absolutely um and then the sort of flip side that the paper talks about is case two um which is says in febrile children over the age of one does the presence of these clinical signs of meningism confirm the diagnosis of meningitis
1: yeah so that's another really um so again it's that it comes back to the same points around risk so i think the way it's presented is uh, just looking back so the risk remains under one percent so this is a little bit how you sell it so you know uh, good news uh, only one in a hundred children will have uh, meningitis um, so i'm not too worried uh, or it could be you know now it's terrible news uh, one in a hundred children are gonna have a life-changing infection potentially uh, you know so um I think if the presence of signs moving you into that 1%, which on the face of it sounds like a pretty low risk. But uh, again, maybe given the severity of the illness, it's actually probably quite a, lot, a high risk. And I suspect a lot of clinicians would say, actually, that's a, that's a point where I would want to uh, investigate further. Uh, yeah. I mean, taking the this, this simple statistics out of it, which are pretty... They're they're informed by the you know, they're informed in a sensible way based on the available literature, but are but are definitely you know estimates, and they don't factor in all the other clinical features which will change those probabilities drastically once you start adding in, you know do they look well or not, um, do they have um, you know changes in their biomarkers and things like that, um, it also comes down to just pragmatically you know you're not going to, to say your child is unwell and clinically I think they have signs of meningism but I'm not going to do anything. But I think knowing that we, even if you find some worrying signs, there is a, there's still you're you're actually still looking for something that is now uncommon, so you're you're treating based on risk still, and that yeah. goes back to what we were saying. So less and less are we treating. I think on, I must treat this bacterial infection. I must not treat this viral infection. It's I must treat this high risk presentation. I must I I should not treat this low risk presentation, and then we need to have a debate around what's low and high risk based on what the procedures are involved to make the diagnosis, and um,
0: what's the outcome if we miss it. Yeah. Um, and the, the final case that we sort of alluded to previously was was talking about younger children. Um, and, you know, it sort of says, are, are clinical signs of meningism useful in children under the age of one? And why is that sort of relevant?
1: It's, it's more to do with, um, well there's actually I was, there was quite a few different reasons so first of all this is written not just for consultant pediatricians so um you know I, you teach medical students and other and were, we're doing doctors and teach medical students people are uncomfortable with infants examining them uh, and we've all seen infants that are, have had quite maybe subtle signs and had and had meningitis so I think it's more subtle um it's much harder to to demonstrate some of the signs. And some of the signs, things like Kernings and Brzezinski's just aren't there. Um, yeah. Signs are slightly different. Some more like to be irritability, you know, an abnormal fontanelle. Um, but it could be as subtle as just poor feeding. And then we've also got the... We tried, as we said, you know, to be totally honest, this is... Um, a paper that's designed to maybe promote some debate, get you to think about the signs of meningism, uh, meningitis and, and give you some information informed on the best available evidence that we've got. Um, but there isn't any evidence really for those children in the same way. So a lot of the studies would exclude the youngest children. and um, I don't think any of them included children um, over two months. So um, to kind of answer your question is the signs probably aren't there. Um, the signs that are there are much harder to detect and we haven't got much in the way of literature to fall back on. So it would be very, very cautious in your your your, your infants especially the younger infants
0: yeah and again it's it's all about risk it's all about acceptance of of risk and we recognize that these that particularly the younger ones are potentially higher risk and i think everybody's automatically doing that aren't they um and this is sort of hoping to to sort of look at okay well how do we slightly differently manage and manage risk in the older children as well
1: yeah absolutely and in terms of your risk you're right so um again there's some there's a, it's not the archives papers if i'm trying to sell archives but the um the step-by-step step work that's, that was done yeah. um out of spain is is a really good again reference point if you want an idea of what your pre-test probability is so even if you're not interested in the step-by-step stuff going and looking that the fact you know they they run a kind of 15 to 20 percent serious infection rate in children under three months. You know, it doesn't matter whether they're febrile or not at presentation and their rates of invasive infection are, you know, you're running in kind of rather than points of a percent, you know, two, three, four, five percent, depending on which paper, which cohort, exactly which group you've looked at. So um your pretest probability is
0: much, much higher in, in those um in those younger infants. Yeah. Um so then Finally, looking at the the clinical bottom line, um, and I'm, I am simply reading off the paper now. Uh, it says that the absence the absence of Koenig's, Brzezinski's, and rigidity is reassuring in a low risk setting, but we cannot fully exclude meningitis.
1: No, that, that's I mean I think the thing there is that's why um, we're doctors. <laughs> that's why you're not going to get replaced by um, I don't think Amazon, Alexa, or Google, or you know you're going to have to. Look at the population. Look at the clinical signs. Put that all together. Communicate that with the family. Um, think about your, you know, dis- disposal routes. kind of admission, ambulation. You know, follow up at home. GP follow up. You know, all of those things. Put them together and come up with a plan that's tailored to the child. Which is the fun of pediatrics to a certain extent. Um, yeah. Certainly, more and more for me in terms of actually n- not just. Um, Maybe looking at a guideline, but going beyond that and taking the information that's there and trying to communicate that work to tailor your approach a little bit, depending on
0: what's in front of you. Yeah. And the the final bottom line is the flip side of it, of course, which which sort of says, you know, the presence of Koenig's, Brzezinski's and nuclear rigidity confers enough risk to justify further investigation which, which yeah, so you can tell I, I
1: really don't like being too prescriptive because I do think we have <laughs> to have our autonomy so again I think if anyone has signs and they said you know actually I, I there was some neck stiffness or uh, I, I thought I've got a Koenigs or Brzezinski's positive in a, in a child that's you know got a febrile illness that's acutely presented and I wanted to go I felt it was appropriate to go and investigate that further the, the no I, I don't think anyone would argue with you the evidence would support that as, an, as a reasonable approach um, the and the signs don't diagnose meningitis anymore certainly not in the population post-vaccine that we have but again I think it does confer enough risk and um, to justify further investigations I think there's one more point just before, because we all get it as this is a kind of an opinion piece. So a lot of the way these articles work, um, are they're going to be fun, educational. There's usually something behind them that we want people to learn or to think about. Um, but it doesn't kind of obviously supersede nice guidelines. So someone might read this and say, but the nice guidelines say, and that's absolutely fine. And, and you, you know, we should, we should look at our local and national guidelines, but this is about thinking about some of the signs and features behind that. And as we Progress in our careers, we 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 have to do that and try and communicate some of that with our families and and try and start to tailor what we
0: do a little bit. Yeah. Um. So finally, Tom, having written this paper, has it? Do you think changed your practice at all, or sort of just reinforced what you thought you were already doing?
1: I think it's made me um, better. we not or find it easier to communicate risk. So that's. Maybe not too many of my decisions are changing because we do have yeah. um, guidelines that we we are encouraged to follow and they're there for good reason. But I think sometimes you can communicate risks, so it's it maybe helps me to say, look, you know, there are a few worrying signs here, but um, although we're going to cover for the worst, you know, the worst case or the more worrying infections, um, let's let's not let's wait for the test results and let's see because there's still a reasonable chance that this will be okay. You know, so I think it's not necessarily had a huge impact on practice and i'm not sure it will on other people's i think it'll be useful for reminding them of the clinical signs and give some context Um, and that goes back to my points about national guidelines things like nice guidance but it might just help us to frame some of those discussions what we have with you know um with parents and things like that and how we how we communicate what's going on the risks and why we're doing some of the tests
0: yeah excellent um thank you so much for joining me today tom and and i would uh, i really enjoyed reading this paper and i would encourage anybody listening to go and actually read the paper itself which is in the archives of disease education and practice Uh, thank you so much thanks very much